Okay, here's my question to start off this morning. You may wonder what all this is in front of you. Who would like to have a happy home? I think that's pretty much everybody would like to have a happy home. Well, what makes a home happy is kind of the subject that I want to speak to you on this morning. And uh, the Halifax Building Society did some research in 2017. Now, I'm guessing they were, they were asking people who wanted mortgages, so they were probably, these were people who would be looking around your home, potentially, if you ever come to sell it. And over a 1,000 people picked five things as their top things that they felt were necessary to make a home feel nice and happy and so on. So uh, I've sprinkled those five things with some things that I kind of added myself and made up. And you have a little job this morning before we get into the Bible to decide which you think is the real things that people pick. Are you ready? Do you want to have a little go at this? You can write your answers on your hand, on your uh, phone, what, keep it in your head, but I'm going to have to trust your honesty if you actually manage to guess these right. So number one, Lily, come and put a number one up here, please. Number one, she's moving it. She's changed my number one. How are you going to do this if she moves everything? All right, number one, people feel a home is a nice home to be in if it is clean and tidy. Ta-da. Number two, if there are fresh flowers. I hope they survive without water for the length of the morning. These actually represent a color scheme. Apparently, people like yellow and green in a home. This is only 2017. Who knew? I thought it was all gray. But green and yellow, apparently, people feel drawn toward. Number four, soft lighting. <laughs> That's why our electricity went out last week. No. Um, number five, some home cooking. That makes a home feel nice. Number six, some nice snuggly throws. Actually, I added the chocolates. You know, when you go under a nice snuggly throw, you need chocolates, right? But they're the prize of whoever gets this right. So number six is the snuggly throws. Number seven, sentimental family pictures. Look at that. In case you weren't here when Karis and Ben got married, or in case you weren't here when Lily and Doug got married, or if you never knew my son Richard and his Beautiful Colombian wife, Manuela, that, yeah, the heart, those are the Harding weddings. Um, and then number eight, we have got nice flooring, whether that's, doesn't matter whether it's hardwood or carpet, but nice flooring. Number nine represents a made bed, a nice, tidy made bed. Now, I'm going to guess we've got a division here this morning. Who makes their bed when they get out of it? <laughs> and who makes their bed after it's had a little chance to air, you know? <laughs> they leave it a little while. Okay, well, listen, I've got some research for you because there is uh, some research proves of those of us that make our bed when we get out of it, over three-quarters of us would class ourselves as happy people. So if you make your bed when you get out of it, you are quite likely to class yourself as a happy person. Whereas, wait for it, if you are in the group who do not make your bed when you get out of it, 
three quarters of you nearly would class yourselves as not a happy person. So, if you want to be happy, make that bed is the message. <laughs> but I'm going to suggest that making a bed and having it nice and, nice and tidy is one of the ten things that people say make a home feel nice. And finally, candle. Now, it's not just any old candle, apparently. It is a vanilla-scented candle. I don't know if that's wafting towards you on the front row, but I have spared no expense in that that is a vanilla-scented candle. Have you got your five things that you think a thousand people picked as real? Okay, well, let's, let's pick them out then. I'd better get this right. Are you ready? I'm going to trust you to be honest. Number two. Hands up if you put number two. The flowers, that's the first one. All right, well, if you didn't put the flowers, you've already lost because they were definitely in the list. Number two of the five things, the green and yellow color scheme. Now, you should have guessed that was true because that would be unlikely that I would make that up. <laughs> so number two is the color scheme. So flowers, green and yellow color scheme. And we've got to go all the way down this end. I'm seeing what order we put these out in. Number three is the sentimental photographs, family photographs. Number four is the made bed, <laughs> tidy bedrooms. And number five is the vanilla candle. Did anybody get all five? I get to keep the chocolates. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, well, okay, all right. Did anybody get four? Oh, come on. Oh, two, oh, two people got four. Are you going to be able to share the chocolates? You have to come and fight for them later. Okay, all right. I saw that hand and that one there. You can come and fight me for them later. Well, my title today, as you probably guessed, I've actually called it A Happy Home. And I know that's a bit sort of twee, but I think you'll remember it. So I sort of decided to call it that, A Happy Home. And the thing is that we live in a society that sells us a bit of a lie on this one because it tells us that a happy home is connected uh, directly to your possessions and how much money you've got and whether your house is sort of a bit like a show home and if you've got amazing furniture and so on. And interestingly, it's apparently the under-30s among us that place more value on what a home looks like, whereas the over-50s value happiness more in a home to make it feel a great place to be. But our society generally likes us to buy things. So it makes us think that a happy home depends on what is in it. And I want to tell you this morning, a happy home doesn't depend on how much money you've got. And it doesn't depend on the latest color scheme or posh kitchen or whatever, or any of those things. You don't need the latest gadgets to have a happy home. You haven't got to be like Mary Berry or Martha Stewart or whatever the male equivalent is of those. I don't know. Someone can probably tell me. But if you think about it, you would probably agree with me that the happiest homes you have been in have not necessarily been the ones with the most money. As a child, I used to love to go and play in my friend Judith's house, and I was one of two 
And my mother had a very, she was, she was tidy, you know, she would throw the paper away before my dad had read it because it was messy, you know, so she was quite tidy in our house. But uh, my friend Judith was one of five in a smaller house than us, and so uh, all the four girls were in one little bedroom and they had like sort of orange boxes for their bedside drawers because they didn't have any money or what have you. But I loved to play in that house because it was always fun, there were always things going on and they were allowed to do things that I wasn't allowed to do in my house, like make a mess and things like that. And so I loved it and it was not the house that had the most money. And sometimes a house that is very luxurious, you've probably found yourselves, that's not always the most comfortable. You know, you sit down a bit scared that you're going to leave a mark on the floor or the sofa or something, and someone's going to shout at you. Okay, well, before we look at the passage for today, I want to fill in a little bit of background for you. We are partway through a series uh, based in the first book that Peter wrote. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, and we're in uh, that series And this is actually the sixth message in that series, as Steve told you earlier on. And Peter gives us some good advice about what matters in having a happy home. And we know Peter was a married man. How do we know Peter was married? He he asked Jesus to pray for his mother-in-law when she was sick. Now, whether you would want to get your mother-in-law better is up to you entirely. I'm looking at my two son-in-laws right now. see what they look like, if they're going to pray for me or not when I'm sick. But uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, so we know he was a family man. He's qualified to give us some advice on this subject. But at the time that he was writing, things were very different to how they are for us today. For example, in the culture that Jesus was addressing, women had a very different place, and they were really thought of as belonging to a man. In that culture, they either belonged to their father before they got married, or they belonged to their husband when they got married. They were like a sort of possession. And if you were a girl in that culture, well, you were kind of either waiting to be married, probably to someone that your parents would have arranged for you, or you were married, or you were widowed. You know, that you didn't really have a kind of single successful career girl option in the time that Peter was writing. And if you belonged to your father, there were duties he expected of you. And if you belonged to your husband, there were duties that he expected of you. You didn't really have much freedom, is what I'm saying. You didn't have any control over your own finances or your own destiny. And Jesus actually treated women very, very differently to that. He was incredibly inclusive of women in his life and his ministry and his teaching that men and women are absolutely equal was radical in that day. So Peter's teaching in this passage to husbands to treat their wives properly was very different to the culture of the day. And he was also addressing a problem that often arose in the early church where a woman who was married came to know and follow Jesus but perhaps her husband didn't. It's women, you know, we are spiritually aware, right, ladies? Anyway, um, and so he was saying, husbands, you've got to treat your wives better, and wives, you can't please yourselves and just leave your husbands because you've become a Christian. You've got to behave in a way that will influence and win them. So I'm aware that I'm talking to you today, and you are in very different circumstances to 
when this book was written. I'm speaking to single people, married people, widow people, divorced people, single parents. You're going to be living in all sorts of different situations, but everyone has a home somewhere. And even though Peter addresses this passage primarily to husbands and wives, I hope you'll stick with me and we'll all be able to learn something from it. All right? Is that the deal? Okay, so here is key number six. In order for us to be good ambassadors for Jesus or good representatives of Jesus to people, our homes and our families need to be in order. And Peter has some advice for us. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, followed by verse 7, and I'm reading from the New International Version. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that's the Bible, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful or reverent behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Lord, I ask you this morning to speak through our ears right down into our heart, that we would catch your heart in this passage and that it would help us to have the kind of homes that we all put our hands up and said that we wanted. So we open our spiritual ears to you right now. Amen. So Peter tells us that a happy home is actually what I would call inside out. It's the other way round to how people tend to think. It's not based on things and possessions. It's based on people and how they relate together living in that home. It's not based on what people see on our outside appearance, but it's about what's inside of each one of us. Now, in our culture today, it's very common to think about our rights, what we have a right to. Would you agree? That's quite a thing, isn't it? I have a right to this. I should be treated like that. I should be able to have this. I should have this support, whatever. We have expectations, and people get quite cross when their rights are not met. But the Bible is always more interested in our responsibilities. And in this passage, Peter is talking about our responsibilities more than he is our rights. Because when we insist on our rights, do you know what? It can ruin relationships. It can ruin your happy home. Do I have a right to expect or, on, or insist on something from you that you must give me? Or do I have a responsibility to behave in a certain way towards you? One is taking the other is giving. And Peter is encouraging us to be the givers, not the takers. 
to look to ourselves and say, how can I be the best that I can be in this situation, in this relationship? And whatever home you live in, I would like to suggest to you that that is the best attitude to have. You know, are you going to leave the dirty dishes piling up in your sink because it is not your turn? It's their turn. I'm not going to do it. My right is to expect them to do it this time round. Um, I was doing some reading in preparation for this, and do you know one of the pet hates that people living in a house together have that people don't do? It's not the dirty dishes. It's something else quite funny, really. It's one of my pet hates, too, so I was quite pleased to find it. It has to do with the toilet, but it's not the toilet seat. And it did mention number two, sort of underwear on the bedroom floor. But the number one hate, pe- pe- hate that people have in domestic situations where people are not doing their fair share, you're talking now, it's um, when that person leaves the toilet roll with just one little piece on it. <laughs> You've been there, Okay. That really distresses people. I did hear of one lady who was so determined she was, that her husband, who always left just one little piece on the roll, she, was, she refused. She thought, I'm going to stick this out and see how long it takes him. And uh, eventually there were about 20 used toilet rolls piling up in the corner, you know. And uh, none of them were back where they should be, nice and full and on the rolly thing. Ours is broken, but anyway. Okay. Listen, once we start counting, whether it's our turn or your turn, whatever kind of house you live in, you're in trouble because you're onto your rights, not your responsibilities. And a lot of us today, I'll say us, we, they, whoever you want it to be, don't take the responsibilities that they should. And so this passage is not about wives, you should expect your husbands to behave like this, or husbands, you should expect your wives to behave like this, or people that you're living with. It's about wives, this is how you should be in this relationship with your husband. Husbands, this is how you should treat your wives. And the passage started in the same way. Did you notice that? Right back at the, when I read the scripture out, it started in the same way. That means it refers to what went before, which uh, some of you have been here for the series, and it tells that we've been looking at how to posture ourselves in various life situations at work and so on and so forth. And what we've learned is that we don't just do the right thing when we're being treated right. We do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. We don't just do the right thing when we're being treated right, we do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And in the same way, we should behave in our families and relationships. So I'm going to pick out three areas that Peter picks out for us here. And first of all, Peter gives some very specific advice to wives, and he picks out three qualities. He says, wives, be submissive, reverent, and chaste. You can almost hear a sort of, can't you? Because these are not frequently used words in our society. You know, you don't stand at the bus stop and tend to talk to someone. Oh, I'm being very submissive and reverent and chaste this week. Um, You know? So 
let's just look at them briefly and remember, you've got to read this through the right glasses. Remember that elsewhere in the New Testament, we are all told to submit to one another and prefer one another in love. The Bible's very clear on that. We submit to one another. We don't insist on having things our own way all the time in any relationship, whether it's marriage, friendship, parent to child, child to parent. We don't want to be those who say it's my way or the highway. We want to prefer and make room for one another. Amen? That's what it means to submit to one another. And we're also clearly told in the Bible that there is neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew. In Christ, we are all equal. We're all equal in his sight. So to be submissive in this context clearly doesn't mean less than or inferior. Okay? Are you with me? Wives are not less than or inferior. And it also doesn't mean that all women submit to all men. That, that, that's not in this passage either. That's not what God is saying. All women most definitely do not submit to all men. But in any organization whether it's a family, a church, uh, the place of where you work, the government, somebody has to have the final responsibility for the decisions. That's kind of what this is about. And in a marriage, God holds husbands responsible for what goes down, for the decisions that get made. Now, um, I've got given a really tricky subject here, haven't I, to speak on, to be honest, so bear with me. I am not saying it's ever okay for a husband to be a bully or to boss a wife around or tell her what to do or dictate her what she should do. In a marriage, you are equal. You're allies. You are a team. You talk about things. You make your decisions together, but God holds the husbands responsible for that decision. It's quite good, really. I think it's quite a good deal myself. <laughs> the husbands also get told they have to love their wives like Christ loved the church while well, he died for the church. You know, that's pretty, um, pretty tall order for those husbands to love us in that same way that Jesus loves us. So husbands, you have to carry the responsibility and you have to love us unconditionally and um, pour out your lives for us. So, okay. Listen, if you ever really can't agree... Husbands have to take responsibility for the call they make. And in your marriage, even if it's the wife that usually makes the decisions in your particular setup, it's still the husband that takes the responsibility for that decision. Do you see the difference that I'm making there? I was trying to think. Have, I've been married for, it's going to be 37 years in October. So you can all cheer, isn't that? Yes, hooray. <laughs> And uh, I was trying to think of an example. Has there ever been an occasion in our marriage where we really couldn't agree and this sort of passage came into play? And I don't mean things like, should we buy the Frosties or the Weetabix or, you know, where do we put the, should we put the picture on this wall or that wall? I mean, have we ever had a real, we could not resolve it sort of situation? And actually, I could only think of one thing about 20 years ago, so that's not too bad, is it? As sort of statistics go. And Clive and I at the time were both feeling very stirred in our sort of heart, if you like, that we were about to make some kind of move. We were living down in Oxfordshire at the time with our three uh, children who would have been sort of 12 and downwards probably about then. And we were both feeling that a move was coming up for us. And at the time, a possibility arose that we would 
go to uh, work in Central Asia in a nation called Kazakhstan. And uh, we couldn't agree on it. You might not be surprised to find that. <laughs> I'd been to Kazakhstan. I, I love the people there very much, but I felt like I need... Clive was sort of quite keen, and I felt I need a bit more. I, I need more of a sort of you know, definite word from God to make such a, a big move and uproot the family to a, another nation and so on. And so what are we going to do? Because we, we really could not agree on this. So we did what, what actually the bit of the passage that I didn't read out to you says. We agreed to pray about it. I thought, I'm not going to get fearful about this. We're going to pray about it. And we were in the process of praying when along came our pastor at the time, Steve Thomas, and said, would you pray about going to Newcastle? And uh, our lives changed. We didn't go to Kazakhstan. We came here. God stepped in. I didn't have to go to Kazakhstan. But, <laughs> but do, do, you can trust that God will work it out for you. You know, we didn't have to fight over it and have some standoff for two months. Okay, we'll just pray about it and see what God says. And we got the opportunity to come here. Now, you might think that was the same as coming to another nation, but... <laughs> It felt like it at the time, but I love it dearly here, and I'm so glad that God got us where he wanted us, okay? So, but at the end of the day, Clive was responsible in my heart for making that decision. Now, by the way, if you're a single parent, I, I know many of you feel that making decisions for your family on your own is one of the hardest things you have to do. I won't ask for a show of hands, but it's tough making decisions on your own when you don't have two of you to pray and talk about them together. And I do believe there's a special grace for you if you're in that situation. And I do believe that that's why you're part of a church family as well. So, have you got it? Submission does not mean that you just get told what to do. It does not mean that women submit all women to all men. It means that together you find your way forward as a family, but that the husband has the responsibility for that decision. And then, Paul, uh, Peter says, that uh, mentions about being reverent. Well, in this context, this is not a religious word, okay? What it means is, uh, when that moment comes, when that sort of handsome hunk you married, um, that always looked perfect and treated you perfectly, suddenly starts to make strange noises and smells and all sorts of things that he never did before you were married, you carry on respecting him. That's what it means. Be, be reverent. Keep on respecting him. Keep on loving him, even when he's not as lovable as he first was. And um, in some ways, of course. And then Peter says that wives should be chaste, which also sounds a little bit old-fashioned, doesn't it? All it means is if you're married, oh, choose to only ever look to your spouse for physical affection and intimacy. That's what it means. Make that decision that this is where my source is now. It's in my marriage. And if you want to look at it another way around to help you get your head around what Peter is saying here, think of the opposite of those words. The opposite is what you're not meant to be. And the opposite would be, be aggressive, contemptuous, and flirty with other people. Well... Would that be helpful to a marriage if you took that point of view as a wife, if you were aggressive, contemptuous, and flirty with other people? It would not help your marriage. So uh, Peter has some good advice for us here. And notice it applies to you even if your husband is not a believer. You won't win him by preaching to him. You won't win him by nagging him. But you stand more of an opportunity for God to break into his life if you treat him well and behave rightly toward him. So that's the first thing. 
Okay? The second thing is, Peter says, don't let your beauty be merely outward things. Your beauty doesn't depend on what you wear, how your hair is cut, or what accessories you own. And listen, it's okay to look nice and make the best of yourself, but who you are inside is way more important. Cosmetics take 10 minutes to put on, right? Well, it's, you know the 10 minutes where the husband sort of says, are you ready? And you say, 10 minutes. <laughs> that 10 minutes. <laughs> Flexible 10 minutes. But they come off again later. You know, even that long-lasting lipstick doesn't last that long. And that waterproof mascara does not withstand uh, advanced classes in sobbing, you know. <laughs> It comes off. It doesn't last. Character takes a whole lot longer to have, but it doesn't come off. Is that right? Inside beauty takes a whole lot longer than outside beauty, but it lasts a whole lot longer. And uh, there was a famous preacher in the last century called uh, Dr. Sankster, and he once shocked his church by announcing that he was going to hold a beauty contest. Can you imagine if you said, we're going to have a beauty contest in church? Anyway, he said this, but there was a condition. The applicants all had to be over 60. I'm getting there. A few more months. Anyway, that was his condition, and he wanted to make the point that there is a massive difference between glamour and true beauty. Okay, we don't stay 20, guys. You know, we get laughter lines and our hair changes color and we have your kids and our tummy goes a bit squishy and things like that. And I've got some really good advice for any single guys here who are tempted to pick their wife with their eyes. Do you want to know what the advice is? Carefully hidden. Behind the chocolates. Here she is. Get yourself one of these. She will be a lot less trouble. Much cheaper in the long run. And she won't change a bit from day to day. So if you want to choose with your eyes, guys, get yourself a Barbie. Preach it. A wise person once said, listen, if you're a guy or a girl, I know that's funny, but whether you're a guy or a girl, if you are looking for someone to marry, choose with your ears, not with your eyes. Now, there was a certain era back in the 1970s, 80s, and some of the people here probably remember it, when in the sort of Pentecostal tradition, it was sort of almost sinful to wear makeup. Do you remember? I'm not going to ask for hands, but you know, if you wore nail varnish, you were on your way to hell pretty much. And uh, you, you, you really sort of, it was almost more spiritual not to care about yourself. And I am not for one minute suggesting that women should not care about how they look. But I am saying we are way, way more than how we look. And we don't want to be judged by how we look. And Peter is saying, don't get hung up on looks here. It's just merely the outward adornment. And our society puts a lot of focus on how people look whether it's on the television, on social media, there is a lot of pressure. And there's a lot of pressure particularly 
on young women and girls to look a certain way, and it causes un- distress and even mental health disorders which are on the rise in younger women. And I just want to say, please, guys, don't add to that pressure for us. Uh, God looks at the heart always. He always looks at the heart. Whether you're a guy or a girl, God is interested not in what you look like on the outside. He is interested in your heart. And Peter talks about the importance of the hidden person of the heart. He talks about the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And I want to tell you that has absolutely nothing to do with your personality. It has nothing to do with whether you're loud or quiet or bouncy or more reserved. It's to do with the inside. It has everything to do with being confident and assured in who you are in God. That's what it's about, having that confidence and assurance. And Derek Prince actually teaches we should all have that attitude. This is not just about women. Jesus was our example, and he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. He didn't insist on his rights at all. And so we should all have that attitude. It's not just for women. So let's wrap this up finally with a third thing, the advice that Peter gives to men. He says, starts it by saying, you husbands, in the same way, so remember, not um, demanding your rights, not Uh, but taking your responsibilities. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, weaker here, again, does not mean inferior or lesser. It could be to do with physical strength. Have I got some arm wrestling contests going? Generally, the guys are going to win if they're against a lady. Not always, but, you know, some of the time. But if you look at the ground to this is actually referring to the fact that women are the ones who get pregnant and have children. And this is a recognition that Peter is making of that role in a woman's life. And it is a directive to men to be considerate of all that side of a woman's life and what that involves and honor your wife in that and make her special in that side of her life where she might potentially be a bit more vulnerable. That's what it's about. We're just different. That's how it is. We're not inferior. We're not superior. We're equal heirs in all that God has for us. And it also says in that verse to husbands, show understanding and consideration. And it doesn't mean show understanding in the, in the sort of way of being sympathetic, you know. Oh, I understand, poor little you, you know. It's not that at all. It means, husbands, you should make every effort to really understand what makes your wife tick and meet her needs. That's what it means. Gosh, these guys have got a lot to be getting on with, haven't they? This, uh, by the way, to understand what makes your wife tick and what she really needs, I want to suggest is a lifelong project, okay? (laughs) You never sign off on that one. And then it means take your understanding of your wife and what makes her tick and what her needs are and apply it daily in your life with your wife. Marriage is supposed to be the most unselfish relationship ever, apart from Jesus toward us, of course. 
And it means showing courtesy and consideration, love in all the little things. And here's a question for you. Are you still as courteous to your wife as you were when you were courting? And another version of the Bible talks about having tenderness and tact towards your wife. And interestingly, Peter also tells us that the failure to live as a godly husband and please your wife has spiritual consequences. Did you catch it? Did you see it in there? I don't know if we've got it coming up on the screen. But he says, if your attitude to your wife isn't right, don't expect your prayers to be answered. God will be deaf to you men until your wife says, he's being really nice and kind and considerate to me. You can answer his prayers. Okay? (laughs) We have the power. Uh, You know, seriously, God doesn't want to listen to you just speaking words if you're not living the life. And he specifically uh, encourages men here to be living the right way toward their wives so that their prayers will not be hindered. So that should totally motivate all you married guys to treat your wives fantastically well because I know you don't want to waste time praying and it not get answered and it just sort of go in the storage box somewhere until you kind of uh, release it by your better behavior. Anyway, in conclusion, you've been very patient with me. Are you still here? Are you going to remember what we talked about? Okay. Well, in conclusion, a home is much more than a house. It's much more than all this stuff here. I'm going to have to try and carry that all home again now, aren't I? Anyway, it is much more than a house. God has a vision for your home. He wants it to be, he says elsewhere in the Bible, like a little bit of heaven on earth. Wherever you are living, God wants your attitude and the atmosphere in that place to be a little bit like heaven on earth, a place of rest, a place of refuge, a place of blessing for you and blessing for other people. And so I'll just leave you with this thought. Is your home somewhere that other people want to come to? And that would be something to think about this week. Think about the atmosphere in your home, whether people feel a sense of the presence of God when they come to your home. And if we set the right atmosphere in our homes and we take the responsibility to be the best that we can be with whoever we are living with, particularly for husbands and wives, if we concentrate on the inside more than the outside, we're going to have happy homes. And that sixth key of being the best possible representatives for Jesus in our communities and generation. Amen? Thank you very much. Why don't we stand and I'll pray for you. And after this, I'm going to hand back to Steve and Caroline and we're going to have some tea and coffee if you can stay and join us for that. And you guys can come and fight over the chocolate. So, okay. Lord, I thank you that you and in the Bible give us some great advice how to live our lives. It's one of the most practical books ever written. We thank you that you understand us better than we understand ourselves. You know what makes us tick and you know how we should live. I pray every one of us would have some time this week to think about uh, what our home is like. Is it a house or a home? And we pray that you would come and help to make the difference in atmosphere and in our own inner lives so that we could truly have the best happy homes in our communities. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.